Well, since we're covering Revelation, I wrote down from Jim's message to me uh, that this was your wrap-up questions on the Revelation course. But since I'm in the studio and not in your living room, I'm going to show you a few of my props. Every time I go to Jerusalem, I go to a rock shop in Jerusalem that sells uh, stones that have to do with the Bible. And I looked up um, in Hebrew from the book of Revelation chapter 21, the, the colors of the foundation stones. And uh, I bought two of them. And this is the red color of, of one of the foundation stones. And this is the green, but they have Hebrew written on them. Let's see if I, I used to be able to read it fluently, but it's like uh, uh, tizza. So I have no idea what that means, but while we're talking about Revelation, these are two of the colors of heaven that God revealed to us. Isn't that amazing? God likes greens and reds. And uh, so I use that in my props. But the three questions I have, I'd like to cover quickly. You said from Lesson 17 uh, that you had a big discussion about religion as a deadly virus. And so that, I don't, I don't know in the class whether... Uh, because there's one class online, I've taught Revelation 20 times, the editors have trouble knowing which one to put online, and so I never say the same thing twice, as Jim knows from all of our years together. And so I usually cover the difference between Revelation and religion, and Revelation being the inspiration of God's Word, and religion is the human packaging of those uh, truths. Uh, and so I want to go over that for question one. Then uh, you said you talked about something about Roman Catholic theology and, and, uh, and what I said the scriptures say about it. And so with that, I, this is my synopsis of church history. When I, um, in my early grad school, I, I worked for five years on my PhD in church history. That's my big thing was church history. In fact, yesterday, uh, you can't see it, but I took out all of my notebooks because um, I taught seminary level church history, history of theology, uh, church history, uh, heretics, cults, all those things. And I was looking at them and I thought, I still agree, this is, this is the shortest summary of church history. And uh, going from the early church in the New Testament to the Roman Catholic Church by the time we get to the 4th century, to the Reformation Church in the 16th century, to modern times. And uh, so to cover your second question, I'll, I'll do my little uh, graphic over there. And then this one was fascinating, and I was talking with Kirk about it. In Lesson 19 and 20, and Jim, you said something like, why do most people reject Christ during the millennium. I guess what you said is you were shocked that most people did, you know, that the Bible says that. Well, when I was talking to Kirk, uh, I mentioned the power of sin, but what it really is, is the hardness of human hearts. That's what's staggering to me. Um, and I guess the older I get, I start thinking about how much I know from God's word and how hard it is to obey it. And I mean, I have, just like you, the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I know Jesus Christ personally. And yet sometimes I go, love my enemies when they're screaming at me? Mm. <laughs> you know, call down lightning, Lord, you know, get them. And so as a believer, I am still amazed that my human heart is still so easily hardened. So I'll go through those three, but, but let me do these in order and I'll stop after each of your questions and uh, you tell me if that's enough and then I'll go to the next one and then I'm gonna hope to finish with any other questions you have. So uh, in chapter 17, I talk a lot about religion as one of the two viruses Satan has. And materialism, I think all of us are pretty content that materialism dominates in the world. But religion is real hard because all of us were born 
with a theological framework, a grid of some kind. Um, for me, uh, and you all know this from my stories, my parents met in a bar. Uh, my mother was somewhat of an alcoholic. My father was, he was, he could drink an awful lot. Uh, my grandfather died of cirrhosis. My other grandfather died of cirrhosis. So, I mean, I'm from a multi-generational alcoholic family. And uh, this, I don't have a family Bible here, but this pastor of a Baptist church would go visiting with a family Bible under his arm. One of those great big ones, you know, that's about this big, because he wanted everybody to know what he was doing. So he carried around a family Bible and would knock on doors. And my mother was drinking out of a one-gallon bottle. I mean, can you imagine? That weighs like eight pounds. I don't know how she balanced it, but she was drinking. He knocked on the door. She said, come on in. And because it was a screen door. And she said he put that family Bible down, opened it up and said, I'm the local Baptist minister from Okemos, Michigan. Can I talk to you? She said, yeah, she was quite happy, you know, with her gallon. And he led her to Christ. My father came home and there was a different person in the house. I mean, it's amazing. She didn't want to go back drinking with him at the bars that fast. I mean, it was kind of those, some people are radically converted and some people, <laughs> it seems to take a long time. And so he came back, this pastor, and started working with my dad. So that shapes my life. I mean, that, that's my earliest view of Christianity, this door-to-door, uh, -door, big Bible, sharing the gospel, changed life. Some people weren't like that. They're more in the refined, slower Christianity. So religion, what I'm talking about with this is the contrast between revelation, which is the truth of salvation God revealed, which uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's divine accomplishment. Uh, in fact, uh, I... I always write down Ephesians 2 and Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says, for by one sacrifice forever, we were forgiven through Jesus Christ. One sacrifice. So I call that divine accomplishment. In other words, God said he did everything. And the only way to get it is by grace through faith. So uh, let me find my red marker. Um, through faith. Religion, every religion in the world, everyone has all of these elements of human achievement. You have to do, 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 and you're never sure when you've done enough. And um, since I have you in the studio for the Q&A, I'm going to show you some of these resources we use in our 52-chapter study. Um, this one. Uh, all of these that I use are by an outfit called Rose Publishing, and uh, like the flower rose. But this is what we use when I'm in my 52-chapter study, and it's every, it's Christianity, cults, and religions. And it starts with biblical Christianity and then Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, Unification, Christian Science, Unity, New Age, Wicca, Scientology, and the backside has even more. Islam, Baha'i, Judaism, Hinduism, I mean, a lot more, Buddhism. But basically, every religion has some, like the five pillars of Islam. You know, you've got to uh, do your alms and go to Mecca. But what they are are works. So religion is Satan countering what God revealed. And, and that, that's what makes most people reject Christ. Because most people say, 
to say that I can do nothing, and I, th I think another thing I might not have emphasized in chapter 17 is, is our depravity. Um, that, and that's part of this hardness of our human hearts and the power of sin. And so in chapter 17, Satan's lie, uh, all religions have some, some parts of truth. Um, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, you, Hinduism, you know what I mean? You get into some of those and there's very little biblical truth in there. But the more refined kind of Western religions have high percentages of truth. And I don't know if I said this in Lesson 17, but rat poison, as you know, is 99 point something percent grain, wheat, or whatever. It's the 0.5 of strychnine that's the killer. This works, any works. And I'm not talking about post-salvation good works, because Ephesians 2 says, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's after salvation. Before salvation, no works can get us to heaven. And that, that is impalatable to religion. So um, maybe when I get into this and look over here at this chart, uh, I'll go more, but I don't want to use my whole time on one question. So Chief, how did I do, Jim? I, and I'll just throw in, if you look at the history of the church, up until Diocletian's time, they didn't really have buildings. They were into homes. And so it, once we started uh, making these huge structures, then you've got to have, like Barry, you've got to have a lot of rules. You know, who can come in my structure and how do we pay for my structure? And Christianity really changed when it went out of homes and into buildings. And one thing I'm happy about is the more hostile our world gets, the more small groups like what you're doing are going to be the, the real um, growth place for a lot of people, especially uh, if the time comes that Christianity in America is taxed and is not tax exempt, these sprawling mall sized struck, you know, facilities are gonna be inoperable. I don't think they're gonna be supportable. And so that's where, uh, when I teach down here, uh, the 52 greatest chapters, I'm telling every one of those groups, I'm saying, you need to start meeting with a small group. That's where the accountability, that's where your prayer, uh, that's where your accountability for growth. Uh, in Revelation, did I show my journal and everything? Did I show that to you guys? I would, I would always, and, and I really emphasize that you need to have someone that you're saying, this is what God's working in my life about. But that's what the early church was like. But once we got into institutionalizing and, and religion uh, basically started saying, you've got to do all these things to be a part of our facility. And I mean, it's, it's amazing how many people are good at doing and they lost that personal accountability. They lost the reading of the Bible. They lost all that. So, okay. Any other questions on number one? I, I'm not sure I listened to everybody. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one of the, the reasons why I use a resource like this one, Christianity, Cults, and Religions, is it makes a comparison with what the Bible says with all the religions. Uh, who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is the Spirit? How do you get saved? And that's the one, like uh, uh, Brian was just saying, like be baptized. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, to, uh, let's see, Seventh-day Adventism. Salvation is by grace, but maintained only by Sabbath keeping. You know, going to church on Saturday. So each of these is what you said, Brian, Christianity or Christ plus. And you can't be sure 
you have it unless you do the plus. And so that's uh, vital. Well, let me then, Jim, I'll go to number two, uh, Roman Catholicism. And I'll just, I don't know if I ever told this story, but probably one of the sweetest memories I have was ministering in 1979 in Poland, in Krakow, Poland, delivering 1,800 Bibles. And do you know who we delivered them to? A Roman Catholic priest that watched over the shrine of Mary in Krakow, in Poland, which is visited by hundreds of thousands of people. And this priest, who, who was so dear to me because he, he was risking everything to let us come and deliver Bibles to him. Uh, what he asked for, the first time I met him was, he asked for 10,000 Gospels of John. And the, I don't have one here in my props, but the Gospels of John were a little pamphlet. Uh, you know, I mean, Gospel of John is only 21 chapters, so they were just little paperback books. So we brought him 10,000 of those in Polish to the priest, right to his his uh, place where he lived, I don't know what it's called, the rectory or something. Um, and at night, in the dark, because he wasn't supposed to be doing this, and the Polish government was watching and everything else, and we were carrying, us college kids were carrying these in, and I said, what are you doing with these? And he looked at me and he said, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, but he said, many of these people that that have come to my shrine are so weeping and hoping and unsure of anything that he said, I come one at a time to them when they're on their knees. And I say, have you ever read the Bible yourself? And a lot of them go, not all by myself. And he says, I have, and this is the best thing you could do is read the gospel by St. John. And he said, I will personally talk to everybody kneeling at that shrine and tell them they need to be born again if you will give me 10,000. He said, that's, he said, we have 100,000 a year, but I'll probably only talk to 10,000 a year. And I looked at him and I thought, you're more zealous than a lot of Baptist ministers I've met. He was sharing the gospel with every one of those, not saying they weren't saved, but he, he told me, I don't think they understand how to directly be connected to the Lord. So, uh, but let me, let me go through Roman Catholic theology. And the first thing I'll share with you is this. If you've never uh, looked at, and I talk about Wayne Grudem all the time. Wayne Grudem is a very solid um, five-point-plus Calvinist. I mean, but the reason I recommend him is this. This is a systematic theology. It has um, 15, 1,400 pages. For every one of the major divisions of systematic theology, he covers what the Anglican Episcopalians believe, what the Arminian Wesleyan Methodists believe, what the Baptists believe, what the Dispensationalists believe, what the Lutherans believed, what the reform, I mean, what they write in their theologies, what the Reformed Presbyterians, and then the last of the Protestants, he calls the Renewal Charismatic Pentecostals. So that's the top half. The other half is traditional Roman Catholicism, like Ott, he's a famous theologian from 1955, and then the post-Vatican II, McBrien in 1980, wrote, kind of categorized, or cataloged all Roman Catholic theology. What I like about this is, in every chapter, like this is the Trinity, and he just goes through the Trinity with drawings and everything else, and shows what every part of Christendom teaches, and what he points out is, whenever they teach something that's not in the Bible, but it's in their theology. So, Roman Catholic theology versus the scripture is much like um, what I just told you about my Polish priest. 
my Polish priest that I knew in the 70s was a soul winner, we would call him. He was zealous. He said, I'm going to talk to every person kneeling in front of that shrine and ask them, have they ever read the Bible? And do they, could they say they know Jesus Christ personally? And he said, and then he said, I'll get my Gospel of John and say, Jesus said, you must be born again. And he said, I'll hand it to him. Now, that's different. I mean, I'm not sure all Catholic priests are like that. I know that all Protestant ministers are not like that. Many of them don't even hold to the authority of the scriptures in churches today. So there's wide difference in our experience. But let me run through, and I'll, I'll stop at the end of this so you can ask questions. But this is my thumbnail. I'll try and do it in like two or three minutes. This is the early church. Uh, this is... Um, you know, from A.D. Uh, 30 to 300, I'd say. Um, and the early church basically was well taught. And by the way, this is the Bible, the square. Um, and so the early church had many uh, solid biblical. I mean, they were taught by the apostles. Some of them knew Jesus Christ personally as the generations went on. Uh, they would pass on the, the truth. They'd read the epistles. But the early church started developing all this stuff that were traditions not in the Bible. I mean, the earliest heresy was baptismal regeneration. Um, it, it, when the Jews had a problem with circumcision, they believed that if you were circumcised, no matter how you lived, you were going to heaven. Remember, that's Jesus, John 8. Uh, Jesus said, I, you know, Moses taught you circumcision, but I can raise up from these stones. You know, Jesus just confronted them with saying they were not living a transformed life. They said, we're circumcised. Everybody's circumcised. It's a descendant of Abraham is going to heaven. And Jesus said, no, they're not. And boy, did they get mad. Well, the first heresy that developed in the early church was baptismal regeneration. Remember, Jesus, or, uh, his disciples baptized. He told them to baptize. Jesus didn't baptize, but his disciples did. Peter commanded people to be baptized. And so the early church started being much like Judaism, saying, if you've been baptized, you're going to heaven. That, that, again, is back to this religion. That was the first time the early church dipped into religion. They said, if this work has been done by your parents, you know, the parents baptized the child, uh, you know, at birth or whatever, or early on, that became the very first of the heresies. By the way, we have a new one that came around in the 19th century. Uh, I call it pray a prayer or go forward. Uh, it's invitationalism. Really, there are three terrible problems that the church went through. Circumcision saving you, baptism saving you, or I prayed a prayer. All three of those, Jesus said, only affect you on the outside. He said salvation in the Bible has to be inward. It has to be supernatural. Uh, it has to be a new heart. So the early church uh, did have errors, but they were pretty solid, but they had errors. Well, we get to the Roman Catholic Church. I would say that 90, you know, 99%, I don't know, I'm not a good percentile, of Roman Catholic theology, Grudem says, is absolutely accurate. It's this half percent of works that started creeping in. And that's what precipitated the Reformation by the time we get to the 16th century. Uh, Martin Luther said, wait a minute, that that doctrine you have is not in the Bible. 
And he, do you remember all of his debates? He got all the theologians together and Martin Luther debated him and said, unless I can be convinced from the scriptures. Well, so the Reformation Church started, but guess what? They were very solid, just like the early church and just like the Roman church with their Bible. But they started something that is another challenge. And I don't know if I told this in the class, but I call it theological drift. Here's a Bible verse. Here's a Bible verse. Here's a Bible verse. And you can get a truth, a conclusion, a doctrine from Bible verses. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what systematic theology is about. What does the Bible teach? So this is doctrine connected to scripture. But watch what happened in the Reformation. They made conclusions from conclusions. And that is called theological drift. It may or may not be true but it is certainly not tied to the scriptures. Uh, that's where we get a highly contested doctrine called limited atonement. Uh, did you know that the Bible has no verse that specifically says Jesus died only for the elect? But the Bible does say he died for the world and he does say that all the Father gives me in, in John chapter 6 will come to me, and no one can come except the Father draw them. And, you know, I could go over here and say that uh, it says that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So what happens is if you take those truths all from, you know, John and 1 John and 1 Peter, you can come down here and say that, that there that Jesus died on the cross only for the elect. The Bible actually never physically says that anywhere in the Bible. It does say that he chose us. It does say that, that no one can come except he draw them. So that's the problem over here, that all of a sudden the Reformation Church started having this drift. By the way, they were highly political. Mark, uh, Martin Luther sided with the nobility in the, in the battles over the serfs. Uh, Zwingli had an army. Calvin had capital punishment in his church. I mean, if you did not agree with doctrine, they killed people. Servetus, they burned him at the stake for not believing correctly. So. The Reformation Church got into politics, sadly. Um, Zwingli died on the battlefield. I mean, he was a reformer, and he was fighting. Uh, then we get to here. This is fascinating. This is modern times. So this is the 16th century. Uh, this is the 4th uh, to the 15th century. And this is the 1st to the 3rd century. From the 17th century to modern times, you know, the 21st century, we have this evangelical renewal charismatic church, you know, the, the, the growth of the gospel going out through England primarily and missions all over the world and across Europe. But look, the same thing happened nowadays. Like this, something that the Reformation Church didn't do that the new evangelical church did is invitationalism. People were told, if you just come here, you will be saved. If you will raise your hand, if you will pray after me. But what was not emphasized was, if there's not an inward supernatural transformation, no matter how many times you raise your hand or pray or come forward or get baptized, or be circumcised, 
you can do those things, but if God, see, the, the essence of salvation is not what I've done. It's whether I am holding on to what I could never do, what only God can do, what Jesus did. See, that is received graciously by faith. If that really happens and there's this supernatural inward change, I'll start doing good works because I want to be just like Jesus Christ, who went about doing good everywhere he went. So all the iterations of the church, all of the denominations throughout all history have had varying degrees of biblicity or whatever you want to call it, you know, solid orthodox doctrine. All of them, from the early church through the advent of Roman Catholicism through the Reformation Church, which is Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, uh, you know, all of that, through the modern evangelical charismatic thing, all of them have both halves. And this is what we're supposed to do, Acts 17, 11. We're supposed to examine, I mean, the Bereans check what Paul said. Uh, every saint in the Middle Ages should have checked what they heard at the cathedral against the Bible. Everybody should have checked what Calvin was saying and Luther against the scriptures. And today, we should check against the scriptures. Now, does that mean that everybody in the Reformation Church was saved? No. Does it mean that everybody in the Roman Catholic Church was not saved because they had the, you know, the works thing in there? No. Just like my priest in Poland, I would say that until uh, 15, what year was Trent? 46? I don't know. Roman Catholicism wasn't even codified. It wasn't even written down until Trent. And so, you know, it's hard to talk about Roman Catholic theology in the scriptures until right here until it was written down. And that's what uh, we can, you know, it's not what we experience with our favorite church we go to. It's what the official doctrine, and that's why this is so important. Um, most people have never studied what exactly each of these churches say. And, and that's why a systematic theology puts them all in one place. And so with this one, I agree that many people have different experiences with groups uh, that they have been a part of in fellowships. Just, But I, in my course, talk about the differences we have from the scripture. And that's what Bible study is all about. So that's what I was trying to do. It was only to make the chart look balanced. Okay. They're not proportional. So that's why we have to be careful about the whole, talking about the whole and talk about the pieces. That's why I tell people, okay. I'm Catholic, I'm just not Roman Catholic. And, and they go, they always say the same thing. What's the difference? And I say, can I show you? And then I go right to this. I say, are you trusting in what Jesus did or what you're doing? Do you know for sure all your sins are on Christ or you're not sure? That's what that priest was doing at the shrine with the Gospel of John. If they weren't sure, he gave them the Gospel and said, you need to read this and make sure. Well, the challenge is that we're supposed to be connected together in a body where we have all the different giftednesses and have teaching, you know, elders involved. And so um, small groups are great, except sometimes it just becomes a, a small group of good friends that don't have church discipline, that don't have the elements, you know, communion and baptism, that don't have uh, the challenge that, that we need of a body that has got all of the, the giftedness. So I've never met a perfect church ever. I've never pastored one, never joined one. And if there was one, you've always heard, don't join it because you would ruin it by joining it. And so I think we have to be like Paul. This morning, I'm teaching through Paul's life and letters. And I was on chapter 3 of uh, 1 Corinthians, and Paul said, Brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but to babies. 
I am feeding you with milk, not with solid food, because you're not able to receive it. You are carnal. There is envy, strife, divisions. You're carnal. You're, you're behaving like mere men. That was the, that's the original. And they were having problems. But he didn't say, give it up and go, go your own thing. He said, transform this local body. So I think all of us should have this small group, like us six squares, but be a part of a body and be salt and light. And what I used to do in every church I ever pastored, I would walk around to people and I'd say, I'd say, I have a little list in the back of my Bible. What can I pray for you about? And I would write it down and I'd look for them the next week. And I'd talk about what they told me was their prayer request. Every time people were shocked. They said, you remembered? I said, oh, I prayed for it all week long. And I started finding people, they all had a little sheet of paper in the back of their Bible, and they would walk around and ask people for a prayer request. See, you can change everybody by what you do. The second thing I did is I would ask them, where are you reading in the Bible and how is God working in your heart? I'd write down what they said. The next week, they'd tell me the same thing. I said, you were in, you know, Ezekiel 4 last week. <laughs> oh, yeah, I haven't read this week. I said, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be in every, every day eating the word of God. So that's how we change the church. Okay, Jim, what's next? Is that good for everybody? Yeah, that was helpful. That was very good, Catherine. Now, I said this on the class, but in lesson 19 and 20, I emphasize most people in the millennium don't receive Christ. And in the tribulation, even when God has got that angel uh, flying around preaching the gospel, it still says they would not, in, in chapter 14, it says, neither would they repent. And it lists off of their fornications and thefts and murders and drugs and demon worship. That is the hardness of the human heart. And what, what I think is amazing is not that most people reject Christ in the millennium. The worst thing for me is when Jesus walked around the Holy Land for three and a half years, touched people, gave them eyes, gave them you know, the ability to speak and made them be able to walk and fed them and raise them from the dead, as far as we know, at the end of Christ's ministry, only 500 people believed. Do you know that? That's 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus came back after he rose from the dead, and it says he met with about 500 brethren. That means either those were his favorites, or that's all there were. Have you ever thought of that? Probably all of Jesus' ministry, all the miracles, all the raisings from the dead, only, we only had 500 real, what he would call, now many people right after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost, thousands believed. But probably Jesus' total count of his converts is not very many. Why? His own brother didn't believe him. His, he, two of his brothers, Jude and, and, and James, were unbelievers, and they grew up with him. They, they lived with him. It, they mocked him. In John chapter 7, they mocked Jesus, and they, they lived with him every day of their lives, and they saw him and heard him and felt the power he had, and they didn't want anything to do with it. Isn't that amazing? That's the hardness of the human heart. So all we see in chapter 19 and 20 is that most people, even when they see in front of them Jesus Christ himself, our hearts are so hardened by sin, they reject it. Right. Uh, and if I didn't say it uh, then, in Matthew 25, 31, it says, at the end of the tribulation, the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. 
He sits on the throne of his glory. All the nations are gathered. So everybody that survives the tribulation are all there. And he will divide them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, uh, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. So the millennium is the king, the millennial kingdom. So 100% of the people that enter the millennium are, are believers. But, and, they're saved. and they're saved. But okay. sadly, their children okay. do not believe. Uh, not, I mean, some of them, but most of them don't. Um, what I normally do here is, um, and I'll, I'll draw it here, what gradually happens. Did I talk to you about the, uh, about the visitor center? Did I mention that? Yes. That here's the temple, the millennial temple. Gradually, all the saints start doing this. They start camping here. It says the saints camp all the way around this temple because what's happening is more and more of the world as the thousand years goes on, they're they don't want to come to see this thing. Jesus actually is here sitting on this throne and all that going on and they don't want to go there. And it says that finally... The saints are camped around Jerusalem and all the rest of the world marches to destroy this. That's amazing. And it's because there are no, uh, just because your parents are Christians does not make you one. That's the shortest thing. And that's proven in the millennium because the majority of their children reject Christ? That is really a good question. I wish, I wish you guys would ask these questions when I'm teaching the young people. I wait for these good questions so that I can answer. I, I want them to ask those questions, but okay, what's the purpose of the kingdom or the thousand years? There are two purposes. Uh, there's two things that God wants to do. The first one is that about 20 plus percent of the Old Testament is about the millennium. Did you know that? It actually says that God is going to do with Israel all these promises that, that he's going to make them the head of all the nations. He's going to make all the nations come to them. So 20% of the Old Testament has kingdom promises that have never been fulfilled. So God, number one, and I don't, I cannot explain why, but God wants to, to do all the things. In fact, some of his promises to Abraham have still not happened. He said, I will give you all the way from that river to that river. Israel never had all that land that he promised him. You know, we talk about the West Bank. Of which river are we talking about? That, the West Bank is the Jordan. God says, you're going to own all the way to the Euphrates. Have you ever thought about that? Has Israel ever controlled from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates? No, not even in, in David's greatest conquest did they get all the way up there. So one reason of the millennium, why we're going to have the thousand year reign is to fulfill all the promises that God made to Israel. Because do you remember Israel in unbelief was temporarily set aside. God worked with the church, but he told Paul in, and we cover this in, in Romans uh, 9, 10, 11, that the stump of the olive tree is Israel and that the church has been grafted in. So here's the church. They were grafted into the stump of Israel, but it says, don't think, Paul said, don't get proud because God is not done with Israel. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 says God is going to return uh, and, and do those promises. The second reason, and then I'll be done, Barry, and you can tell me what you think, is God is going to show everyone 
that a perfect world uh, does not make perfect people. And we have always thought, uh, and, and we have this problem in the church today, we think if we can just clean up the neighborhood, if we can just outlaw all sins, that's what we're going through right now. These people are excitedly thinking that the Supreme Court decision is changing everything. Oh, no. Uh, no matter how many laws you make against sin, if there's not an inward supernatural change, then the people are going to march in rebellion against everything. That's what happens in the millennium. And so a perfect world does not make perfect people. God takes the whole world back to the Garden of Eden. He starts with a perfect group of people. I mean, well, a saved group of people, imperfect people forgiven. And each new generation, and by the way, I think that it's going to be like before the flood. People are going to live the whole thousand years, and they're going to keep having sons and daughters. It says in Revelation, the world's going to be overspread with people like the sand of the sea. Probably more people will live in the, the millennium than any other time because sickness is abated. There's no warfare. Diseases are basically abated. I mean, we're, we're, almost, we're almost in utopia. And yet sin is still present. And so I think that the, the millennium, primarily, it's got to fulfill all these promises in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, all of the stuff in the Minor Prophets. But I think it's also a visual for all time to know, even with, a, you know, some people think, well, Adam and Eve, why didn't they just go along with it? Well, so God does it again. He puts a perfect world with people that, that I, I shouldn't use perfect, but you know what? A perfect world doesn't make perfect people because everyone's a sinner, and that's what it proves. No, there is death. They're given a 100-year oh, probation. I'm sorry, you, the, the, there's death based on sin. Rebellion, on, yeah. Yeah, I think you called it an untimely death, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, you were given the example in Lesson 20 about uh, the uh, eulogy you gave with the gentleman. I think his name was David or something. But anyway, uh, and how Christ receives you takes you in front of God, uh, and, and I think you would say that that happens instantly when you die, correct? Um, here, just a second, I got a, you're a quicker talker than I am an eraser. Uh, first of all, it shouldn't be based on what I say, it should be based on what God says, and every time I represent myself without God, you should really worry about it. So what you're asking is, um, uh, well, first of all, absent from the body is present with the Lord, right? So are you talking about the instant of death, what happens, or what? Yeah, so you did a good job. You, you tied it to Scripture that, that you die and you go before God. Mm -hmm. Jesus represents you. Mm -hmm. This is my, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're with him in paradise. Mm -hmm. Correct? Mm -hmm. I guess my, my question is more on the second opening of the judgment book. After Christ, after millennial, now we're at the point where God is, you're either in the bottomless pit or you have eternal life. Mm -hmm. it, it almost sounded like that's a second judgment process so I die here on earth I go through instantly this and then I'm still going to go through this second judgment ah so the order good the or the um, after death what happens is the question is that what you're asking yeah. yes. uh, okay um, did I show you the chart of the underworld and yes. the earth and Hades okay so the Bible distinguishes between what happens to a believer after death and what happens to an unbeliever. So for a lost person, they die. They're, 
their body dies. Body dies. They're still conscious. And actually, in Luke 16, Jesus says that they're experiencing pain and still can remember this life. So they still have their, their memory and their senses. Lost people. Saved people. Now this gets complicated. In the Old Testament, or I should say before the cross, it appears that everybody went to this place uh, that Jesus calls Abraham's in Abraham's presence. Remember he said that, that Lazarus was with Abraham. And, and Jesus said, he taught people this. He said, the unrighteous man, the rich man, goes to uh, this conscious torment. So lost people, their body dies, they instantly go to conscious torment. Now, if you want to read about it, I don't know if I talked about this, but in Ezekiel, it's called the pit. There's one whole chapter on it in Ezekiel 30. And it says, everyone is there. All the lost people, and it names them. It says, you know, the Assyrians and the Philistines and the, you know, they're just all there. And, and they're seeing more people come. So these people are conscious and they're remembering and they're saying, that was one of the big warriors. So this is not hell. This is conscious torment in the pit, which is called Hades, Sheol, or the grave, depending on your version of the Bible. The Hebrew word uh, is Sheol. And the you know, Latin Greek is Hades, and English is grave. And it's translated pit in English in Ezekiel. But the saved before the cross, and the reason for this, let me show you what it says in, uh, in the last verse of Hebrews 11 is fascinating. Hebrews 11, the last verse. Let me get there with you. Um, Hebrews 11. Um, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made part perfect apart from us. What he's talking about is the Old Testament, because Hebrews 11 is all Old Testament saints, saved people in the Old Testament. They went to this waiting place. And by the way, that's where this comes from, purgatory. Purgatory has some, a little bit of truth to it. There was a waiting room for heaven. It's right here. But it wasn't to burn away sin. It was to wait until Jesus died on the cross. So that instantly after the cross, what did Jesus say to the, the thief? Today, this moment, you're going to be with me in paradise. This is where he went. Jesus went with the thief to this place and carried all these people into what we would call heaven. Isn't that interesting? They were waiting. They, they were conscious. Everything was wonderful. It was joyful uh, fellowship. But they didn't get the benefit of the cross until, for some reason, God does not give you stuff on credit. He waits till it's paid for. And once it's paid for, you get it, unlike our generation. And so for the saved, back to your question, Barry, after death, what happens? One, to lost people, their body dies, they're still conscious, they're in torment, but it's not hell. It's only bad, uncomfortable. Uh, thirst. In fact, every desire you had on earth uh, is still there and nothing satisfies. And everyone that's ever lived is in this place of torment, 
but it's not hell. The saved were, I always go like this, you know, it's kind of like uh, Abraham's bosom is here and the pit is here. So here are the saved, here are the lost. They were kind of basically with a great, Jesus said there's a big gulf between the two places. This place, the happy side of the grave, gets emptied out at the cross and they go to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body for a believer is instantly to be present with the Lord. And so when, when someone asks you what happens uh, after death, you say, well, it depends. If you're lost, only your body dies, you're still conscious, you're in torment, you're in the pit, which is on earth, by the way. Isn't that awful? It was just to get them to say, for lost people, it's horrible. For saved people in the Old Testament, it was a time of waiting for Christ to accomplish salvation. Paul said it's finished on the cross. So the instant any New Testament believer dies, they're present with the Lord. And by the way, that's the same in the tribulation. Tribulation believers, we see them under the throne waiting with their olive or their palm branches and their robes on waiting for the tribulation to end. So they're absent from the body. They're present with the Lord. Uh, oh, okay. So there are two judgments. Uh, what Revelation 20 talks about is we call it the great white throne. That's Revelation 20. And the great white throne is only for the lost. And they're judged out of the books. Actually, they're all brought up from the pit because it says death and Hades, give up the dead that are in them. Remember all those terms it uses. And the sea gives up the dead that are in them. That's what Revelation 20 says. So the lost are judged by their works. And they actually get degrees of punishment in hell. Did you know that? There are degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus said, many stripes will be for those. He, he looked at um, his generation that he was teaching from, and he says, it's going to be better for people in Sodom and Gomorrah than for you at the final judgment. You saw me, you heard it all, and you rejected it. They never saw me, they never heard it all. They just rejected the revelation of God through creation and through their conscience. They didn't reject God in human flesh. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Believers, believers never go to the great white throne. We go to 2 Corinthians 5, which is called the Bema seat. Now you've heard it called the judgment seat, but what's interesting is the Bema seat was more like where the judges of the race passed out the rewards. Um, it's an athletic event. And so if, if you're a believer and you stand before Christ, it's not whether you're going to heaven or not. It's what kind of reward you get. The only judgment is basically in 2 Corinthians 5.10. There are only two levels of judgment. Every moment of my life was either lived for good, for the glory of God, or lived not for the glory of God. So bad. And the word bad is faulon, and it just means good for nothing. So it's not judgment as to whether or not you're going to heaven. That's what the lost get. Saved people are given rewards. And by the way, everybody in heaven gets at least one reward. Even the people that 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 you always wonder if they're a Christian. You know what I mean? They barely, in fact, uh, Paul calls them saved so as by fire. They get there, but they smell like smoke, okay? They're barely there. Do you know what he said? They all get the crown of life. That means we get eternal life. You know what I say? <laughs> oh man, that's all you need. But who wants to be just barely making it? That's what this is saying. 
that in 2 Corinthians 5 at the Bema seat, we're all supposed to be running a race. We're supposed to be living every day increasingly more of our life for the glory of God and less of our life wasted. I think the older I get, the more I think about that. I just want to waste any time. I want to reflect Christ more. I want to share the gospel more. I want to, uh, this morning, I was sitting out by my fire reading 1 Corinthians, and I was watching the smoke go up and I, from the fire outdoors. And I said, Lord, I don't want my life just going up in smoke. He's going to burn up everything we did that wasn't worth his glory. I want it to be gold, silver, precious stones, Paul called it, not wood, hay, and stubble. So, Barry, after death, no Christian is judged for whether they're getting to heaven. That takes place now. Saved people, watch this, but saved people, it appears that the judgment seat of Christ starts at the rapture and is going all the way through the tribulation and it's all over. We're at the banquet by the time we get to the millennium. We're there, we have our rewards, and we're watching all this happen with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's great. Thank you very, very much. I think I've gone past your time. Aren't you guys supposed to be home? Or this is awesome. This is a, we'll, 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 we'll book another yeah. time. We'll book another time. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you? Have anything for John? Uh, I just have one question. The Bema. What do those letters stand for again? Uh, that's actually the Greek word uh, Bema. Um, here. It's uh, the Greek word. In fact, um, you know, in I keep talking about, I just finished my 52 greatest chapter study. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, um, what did I do with my good blue pen here? It, it's called... Be-ma. That's the Greek word, be-ma, which is uh, a raised platform. And up here sat the Roman judge up here. And when you had a race, you'd come. It was like a tribunal. You'd stand down here and look up at him. And he would declare you're the winner. And you would get to come up there and he would put a crown on your head. So this structure is called the Bema. And there still is one in the city of Corinth, the only complete one you've ever seen. Uh, well, another word for it is rostra. That's what it is in Latin. Rostra, like a rostrum. But it's the place where the official sat higher and that you came up to him and got your reward your, for winning the race. And that's the picture. All of us have finished the race. Each of us get to come up, and there are five crowns that he passes out. And one, everyone gets the crown of life. Every Christian gets that one. But there are four more that many people don't get. And one of them is the, the crown of 1 Corinthians 9 for disciplining our body. Uh, another one is 1 Peter 5 for shepherding the church. Uh, another one is 1 Thessalonians 2 for leading people to Christ. Okay. And then there's, uh, oh, the crown of life is James 1. For sure, and there are five crowns. And one, everybody gets the crown of life James talks about, uh, the self-discipline crown, the shepherding crown, the soul-winning crown. Hey, if you want to pray for us right now, uh, we're, we're launching the DTBM Academy. We have it out there online, but we're really launching it. Uh, we've hired the programmers. It's going to put all the courses together that I've ever taught with study guides uh, and it, they're going to be in order. See, our YouTube website, they're just 4,000, and they're just like a barrel. And this is all in order. And, and I'll tell you one quick thing. I just, and they just sent me a clip of her getting baptized. And she gets up in front of the whole church and tells them, she said, my boyfriend I'm living with says 
I'm different. We've got to, you've got to change like, like God changed me. So she said, I watched this video about the good shepherd. She said, I, I asked Jesus to save me. And she says, and, and he's saved me. And now, and she's just glowing and all. And I thought that was the 100th person we've heard from in the last two years. 100 people have written us the very same thing. During COVID, I couldn't go to work. So I was watching the internet while I was working at home and I got saved. And now I'm growing in the Lord. So one every week for two years, we've heard from. And that, all of us, that's what we want the Lord to say about us. And it, it's not because of us, it's all because of him, but we just have to want him to do it. So, amen. Mm -hmm.